Thanks, Dave. Good morning. My name is Jeff, one of the pastors here. Glad that you are with us at uh, the Parkway Church this morning. If you have a Bible and you want to turn to Romans chapter 8, we will be in verses 1 through 4, as Dave just read. Again, Romans 8, 1 through 4. And uh, as you're turning there, if you can, kind of carry out this imagination exercise with me. Uh, Imagine that you are on a boat. Uh, It can be kind of the boat of your imagination. It could be a, a kind of a flat-bottom bass boat. It can be a trolling motor boat. It can be a catamaran or this yacht or a big Caribbean cruise or whatever it might be. You're on some sort of boat, and something goes wrong. Now, you can imagine anything going wrong that you possibly want, but whatever it is that goes wrong causes the boat to begin to, sh- to sink. So if you're Zach, you think pirates attacked. Uh, if you have kind of an over-romanticized James Cameron version of Titanic, maybe you think that it hit an iceberg. If you're super excited about sharks and Shark Week, maybe you think a megalodon attacked or something like that. Whatever it is, for some reason, you're on this boat, and it begins to sink. Something goes horribly, horribly awry. But as luck would have it, just in that moment, in the very moment that this thing, whatever it is, happens, you happened to be reading your Bible. Not like on an iPad or on your phone, but actually like a hard paper copy, all right? Like something that you'd find like in a library or a museum or something. I don't know, we don't actually read books today. But again, for the purpose of this hypothetical, imagine that you're actually reading from this uh, Bible uh, in this moment and something goes wrong and the ship begins to sink. And you look around, and off in the distance, you see this uncharted, uninhabited kind of Gilligan's Island out there, and you have just a few seconds to go and grab a life preserver. As you know that you and the skipper and the professor or whatever, you're going to have to swim to that island with your life preserver, and you realize you have an extra two or three seconds. And so you have time just to rip a page out of your Bible. Now, this is not some sort of exercise so the elders would know who disgraces God's Word by ripping it or something like that. I think for the purpose of this exercise, this is a perfectly good reason to rip up your Bible. You have time and you have the space to be able to just rip one page out of your Bible and fold it up and clench it in your teeth or something like that as you swim off to this island where you perhaps might spend the rest of your lives. My question for you would be, what would you rip out? You have time to just rip one page, maybe one chapter of the Bible. I highly doubt that any of you are going to decide in this moment, you know what I most want to read about for the rest of my life is the genealogy of Saul. King Saul, I just really love that guy, and so I want to read all about his genealogy. I doubt that many of you are going to go into the Mosaic Law and rip out a page, like uh, maybe dealing with the Mosaic Law uh, regulations concerning clean and unclean food. That would be really helpful if you were an Old Testament Jew stranded on this island, but for our particular context, that's probably not the thing that we would most want to read. Probably most of us are not going to reach for Numbers uh, numbers 11 and the census of Israel. That's going to make us feel depressed as we're on this island all by ourselves with our little volleyball that we name Wilson. We're going to be depressed as we read about the nation of Israel and all the inhabitants there. And so, 
what is it that you would reach for? And I would, I would guess, I would hazard a guess that if I were to, to be able to have five, six, seven guesses or so, I could pretty much guess just about where everybody would land. There's a few places that we tend to kind of concentrate on. Well, if I was in this situation, I was on a boat, it was attacked or whatever it might be, and it begins to sink, and I can rip out one page, I, 100 times out of 100 times, rip out the page that we're on today. Romans chapter 8. I've told uh, this story before, but Romans 8 is, for me, the chapter that was, has been the most edifying and encouraging to me in my sanctification. It was the words of Romans 8 which really freed me from a debilitating fear of public speaking about eight years ago. It's Romans 8 that has helped me see the most victory in my battle against lust and anxiety and shame and fear. It is Romans 8 that has most taught me about adoption, about the love of the Father, the fatherhood of God, this is, for me, my favorite chapter in the entire Bible. Now, all Scripture is inspired. All Scripture is authoritative. But as our former pastor, Jerry Halbrook, used to say, some parts are more helpful than others. In that moment, as we're ripping out one page, what is it going to be? I would argue that Romans 8 is the place. If you imagine the entire Bible is the Old Testament temple, the, I'm sorry, the, old, the, the, the entire Bible is, uh, is Old Testament Jerusalem. Well, the New Testament is going to kind of be like uh, the temple, and Romans chapter 8 is kind of like the holy of holies. Or if you will, imagine that the entire Bible is kind of like the series of mountain ranges. I think Romans is like the Himalayas, and chapter 8 is like Everest. And so what we're going to do today is not adequately defend anything that I have just said. We're not going to exhaust the riches of, uh, of Romans 8 uh, today. We're not going to exhaust it next week or the week after. As a jaunt up, an expedition up Everest is going to take about two months. So we'll spend about two months in this book, and we'll only scratch the surface. But my hope is just by looking at the surface, we will see there is a depth of grace and hope here. So let's pray, and we'll turn our attention to the text. I want to first just ask you to pray for yourself. The Lord would give you eyes to see and ears to hear this morning. And then pray that for those around you as well. Friends, family, strangers. That the Lord would give us collectively an ability to behold wonderful things in this Word. And then lastly, would you pray for me that I would be faithful? So Father, we are grateful for the opportunity we have this morning to open up your word and to explore the riches and depths of your grace. I pray that you would incline our hearts to your testimonies, open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things in your word, unite our hearts to fear your name and satisfy us this morning with your steadfast love. We ask in Christ's name, amen. We'll start on, uh, in Romans 8, 1, which says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We want to begin by recognizing the role of the word therefore. Everything that we're talking about today, everything we're talking about uh, throughout chapter 8 is built upon the foundation of chapters 1 through 7. It's a consequence of that. 
That's what the therefore is therefore. So even if we were to rip this page out, we lose something. Just like if you were to rip something out and there is maybe a, a little gap there where you're losing some of the words, that's what's happening here. As we rip this out of context, in a sense, we're kind of missing something. That's kind of the danger of kind of preaching through the Bible is that uh, what is intended to be read in one sending, uh, sitting is then uh, pressed out over uh, the course of months and months and months. And so uh, let me encourage you, if you have missed any week this summer, let me encourage you, go back online and listen to that audio. All of our sermons from uh, the past uh, few months are up online. And so if you've missed any of this, you're missing some of the context and the context is crucial as he begins with this call. Let us therefore, in light of Romans 1 through 7, we're building uh, Romans 8. And so we've talked before about this terrible triumvirate, this trio, this triad of sin, death, and the Mosaic law. And we've used this illustration of kind of three chords that are woven together to form mankind's slavery. But in Christ, we're freed. That mankind is intrinsically, mankind is inescapably enslaved by the law, by sin, and by death. But in Christ, we are freed. In chapter 6, we saw that we're freed from sin and death. In chapter 7, we see that we're also freed from the Mosaic law, which is great news. You can go home today and have a BLT and not feel condemned. You're freed from those things. So now in chapter 8, as a, as a consequence of all of this, Paul is saying that the reason that believers are not under condemnation is because they have been freed from the tyrannical trio of the law of sin and death. You might think of condemnation as kind of the chair to which you were bound. By the cords of law, sin, and death, you were bound to the chair of condemnation. And because those cords have now been cut, therefore you are now free. And if we're free from the law sin, and from death, then as a consequence of that, we're also free from condemnation. So what is condemnation? I think condemnation is one of those words that we use all the time, but we don't probably know uh, what it means. We can use it in context, but can't really define it. So I want to explore it a little bit. This actual Greek word uh, is pretty rare in, uh, in the New Testament. In fact, in all of Paul's writings, we only see it three times. Interestingly enough, we've actually encountered already the other two usage because they were also in the book of Romans. So in Romans 5, verses 16 through 18, Paul writes this, and the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought, here's that word, condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. If you want to know exactly what that passage is saying, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to the audio from that particular uh, week. But you can see already here... In Romans chapter 8, there is therefore now no condemnation. What he's saying is that Romans 8 is the ultimate resolution to the concern in Romans chapter 5. Imagine, if you will, that you go downtown into downtown McKinney, 
And everybody you meet there, you ask them this question. You ask them, what is the greatest danger facing mankind? Think of all the potential answers that you would get. Capitalism, socialism, Republicans, Democrats, guns, gun control, poverty, illiteracy, climate change, sharks, who knows, zombies, whatever it is, everybody has an opinion about what the greatest threat to mankind is, and some of those are legitimate threats. Some of them, like zombies, aren't. But none of them are the ultimate threat. The ultimate threat, the ultimate danger for mankind is none of those things. It's not climate change. It's not poverty. It's not a political theory or anything like that. The ultimate threat to mankind is this concept of condemnation, God's judicial judgment of guilt upon sin. God's judicial declaration of guilt on sin. If sin is our greatest enemy, then condemnation is our greatest danger. Condemnation is the greatest threat to humanity. In chapter 5, we saw condemnation contrasted with something. We saw it there in the passage that we just read in chapter 5. Condemnation is contrasted with justification. Chapter 5 establishes the teams. Team justification includes all those who are in Christ. Team condemnation, all those in Adam. The entire world will either be justified in Christ or condemned in Adam. Now, you might think about that, and you might think, that seems unfair. That seems harsh. That seems cruel and capricious. It kind of makes God in some sort of emo Kylo Ren or something like that. Why is it that the entire world is categorized by either being in Adam or in Christ? How is it fair that the entire world is either justified or condemned? But if you think that, it just simply reflects the fact that you don't understand sin. Condemnation is not cruel. It's not capricious. It's not unkind. It is just and warranted. It is God's right response to human sin. You see, sin is not this light, trivial thing. It's not light treason. It's cosmic rebellion against an all-wise, all-good sovereign. The Creator of the world. Condemnation isn't cruel and capricious. It's the natural and deserved and warranted response of God. Romans is not written to explain or to answer the question, how can a just God condemn sinners? From a biblical worldview, from a biblical standpoint, that is obvious. Nothing could be more obvious than a just God condemning sinners. What Romans is written to explain is how a just God can justify unjust sinners. You see, God's justice, condemnation, and wrath are not what's surprising. God's grace is what's surprising. So this little phrase, there is therefore now no condemnation, doesn't do something for you. It doesn't affect your affections in some sense. Then you haven't really understood what I'm saying. I'm saying you have been rescued and ransomed and redeemed from the greatest threat, the greatest danger that you can imagine. The world is flooded with wrath and condemnation. And those in Christ are safely in an ark. 
There is therefore now no condemnation means that there is justification and life and joy and hope and peace. No condemnation. That is the what. Now notice here in this passage the when as well. We've covered the what. Notice the when. There is therefore now no condemnation. This word now has two different uh, nuances, two different connotations. There's a sense in which this word now can be read as kind of finally, finally now. And it can also be read as an already now. Both are theologically true, and by the way, both actually make sense in this context. So I think Paul actually intends for us to see both of these nuances, this finally and this already. So let's address both of them. First, the, the, the finally. Finally now, after centuries, after millennia, God has provided forgiveness and justification in the life, death, and resurrection of His Son. The Mosaic law could never do this. The sacrificial system could never do this. But finally, finally now there is no condemnation. Second, the already. This is honestly the part of the now that's probably most difficult for you and for me to believe. That no condemnation is true even now. There's a sense in which the kingdom is not yet. There are certain promises that God has made to us that we're waiting for. Resurrection, the consummation, these sorts of things. But even now, even now, already we're justified, we're forgiven. We don't have to wait for the day of judgment to know the verdict. It's already been pronounced. Let me give you an illustration of both of these senses. So imagine that you have a wealthy family member, and, uh, and that wealthy family member has listed you as the sole heir to their great fortune, and they pass away, leaving you this great fortune. Hopefully, you don't actually say, finally, finally they died, but that's kind of the sense there. Until they actually die, you don't receive the inheritance. Likewise, until Christ dies, there is no forgiveness. Until Christ dies, there is condemnation. Until Christ dies, there is no justification. Finally, finally, now there is, ju- uh, there is con- uh, justification. There is no condemnation. But imagine the other nuance. Imagine that before this family member died, they had this great fortune, but they decide, you know what? I don't want you to just simply receive this whenever I die. I want to actually see some of the fruits of your joy. I want to see the joy on your face as I hand you this exorbitant check. I want to see the joy on your face as you uh, are able to pay off uh, the mortgage on your house, as you're able uh, to take that vacation you've always wanted, as you're able to uh, pay for your kid's college or whatever it might be. I want to see the smile on your face. And so they write you a check before they die, and they give it to you. That's that already sort of sense. And we see both of these here in the text. There is therefore now no condemnation. This little three-letter word, now, means, it implies that this promise is not just directed to some future version of you. It's not a promise for some potential or perspective version of you. Not just some better version of you. This is not for when you eventually clean yourself up. When you eventually conquer that one sin that you just always seem to struggle with. It's not when you finally read the entire Bible. It's not when you've learned Hebrew or Greek and can exegete a passage, or you can recite a catechism, or even if you know what a a catechism is, 
You're really good at prayer. No, it's not for any of those things. It says there is therefore now no condemnation. This is not some promise for whenever you clean yourselves up. When you pull yourselves up by your bootstraps, that will never happen. This promise is true for you now. God has already banged the gavel. He's already declared you to be justified. And this is, again, this is one of the most difficult doctrines for you and I to practically believe. Because we look around at our lives and we see the residue of sin. We see the rope burns, the bruises of being enslaved, and we can't imagine that God would love us in spite of our sin. And yet He does. There is therefore now no condemnation. That's the what. That's the when of this promise. Let's look and talk about the who. For whom is there therefore now no condemnation? It says, for those in Christ Jesus. There it is again, this concept we talk about over and over and over here at Parkway, and we will continue to talk about it. Union with Christ, this idea we keep harping on. I don't even know what harping means, but we keep doing it. Union with Christ, the idea that, that, uh, Christ, that union with Christ is the fountainhead from which every blessing to you flows. That Christ is the sole heir. All of the promises that God makes, He makes specifically to Christ, And as a consequence of being united to Him, you therefore become a co-heir. You become a recipient. You are not the actual heir. You are a co-heir because Christ is the heir and you are in Him. If you're not in Christ, if you've not had your heart regenerated by the power of the Spirit through the proclamation of the good news of King Jesus, then you are under condemnation. But if you are in Christ, there is therefore now no condemnation for you. So that's the what, the when, and the who. Let's move to the next verse and begin to consider the how. Romans 8, 2. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. If you're like me, you thought Romans 7 was super hard to read. Try preaching it sometime. It is really, really complicated. Paul says the law is good, but then he says it imprisons us. Paul says the law is holy, but then it says it exacerbates sin. It seems paradoxical. It seems really complicated and complex. Adding to the confusion is that most of the time, Paul is talking specifically and explicitly about the Mosaic law. That is the 613 commands that are given by God to Israel in the wilderness. But occasionally, we see that that Paul isn't talking about the Mosaic law in particular, but he's talking about, uh, he's using the word law in a more generic sort of sense to, a, uh, to refer to some sort of a general authority or power or jurisdiction. We saw that come up in our text uh, last week. An example of this would be like the way that we use uh, the, the phrase, the, the law of gravity. That isn't a written law like the Constitution or the Mosaic law. It isn't like Isaac Newton talked parliament into passing the law of gravity, and until then, everybody just kind of floated around or something like that. No, the law of gravity means it's this principle, it's this power, it's this authority that gravity has. Gravity is this force by which some object is going to uh, attract another object toward its center. And you probably know this, but the larger the object, the greater the pull. The larger the object, the greater the force that's being acted upon it. So the moon is smaller than uh, the earth. So if you ever see a video of a moonwalk, 
Not like Michael Jackson at the Grammys or something like that, but like Neil Armstrong. If you ever see a picture, uh, a video of that moonwalk, it's this sort of a, a, a jumping sort of motion because there's less gravity there. Whereas if you were uh, on the surface of, uh, of Jupiter, which is 317 si- times the size of the Earth, you would have a hard time getting off the ground, especially because Jupiter is a gaseous planet, as Neil deGrasse Tyson might uh, tell us. But my point is that sin is so large, it's so large that the gravitational pull that it exerts is absolutely unovercomeable, if that might uh, be a word. There's no escaping its gravitational pull. The law of sin and death exerts its influence, and unless that cord is cut, you are always going to be pushed down by it. So I want to give an illustration of this. I don't know what it is about McKinney, but McKinneyites, McKinneyans, whatever we're called, we love hot air balloons. For some reason, there is just an abundance, a plethora. Uh, This is like the hot air balloon capital of North Texas or something like that. And so driving into work this morning, I actually saw a uh, hot air balloon that is uh, right over me. Occasionally, whenever I'm taking my daughter on a bike ride or something, we'll see a hot air balloon. And then I have to figure out how do I ride the rest of the trip where she can see it, because that's all she wants to look at, because she loves balloons. But anyway, there's these hot air balloons. And imagine, if you will, that balloon is Jesus. And you are in that balloon, and the air that's being exerted to overcome the gravitational pull is the work of the Spirit. That's what this passage is saying, that the law, the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Me simply jumping up in the air doesn't overcome gravity. Me simply flapping my arms doesn't overcome gravity. I need something beyond myself to overcome that force of gravity. Sin pulls you toward its center. And at the center of sin is death. But this passage is saying that the cords, the chains, the pull of the law of sin and death has been broken by the Spirit as the Spirit pulls you toward life. By the way, this, these, the, the relationship between Spirit and life we'll see over and over and over again in Romans 8. They're kind of like snow on the peaks of uh, Everest. It's everywhere that we look. And so rather than kind of exploring that right now, I instead want to press pause on that until we have uh, time to really play in uh, the snow there. But what this passage is saying, the law of the Spirit uh, of uh, life has set you free from the law of sin and death. There is therefore now no condemnation because we've been ransomed, we've been released, we've been freed from the tyranny and slavery of sin. That's what verses 1 and 2 are saying together. Let's keep going. Verse 3. 8-3, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin He condemns sin in the flesh. So we're now kind of going a little bit deeper into the how, kind of a how within a how. How is there no condemnation? Notice how Paul begins, for God has done. Again, this is not something that you can ever do in your own strength. The only thing you contribute to your salvation is the sin which makes it necessary. You can't escape that gravitational pull of sin by jumping real high or clicking your ruby slippers together or whatever uh, it might be. You're shuttled in Christ by the power of the Spirit. God takes the initiative. God acts. God works. And how does He do it? He does it by sending His Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. 
So I want to talk about this little phrase there. What is likeness of sinful flesh? What does that mean? Does it mean that he merely looked and felt and seemed human, but really he was something different, like an android or a cyborg, like the Terminator or something like that? Is that what it means there, that he's just God, but he's just wearing this kind of, kind of gross human skin suit or something like that? What does it mean when it says that Jesus is in the likeness of sinful flesh? Well, it doesn't mean any of that. It doesn't mean that he merely looked or seemed or felt uh, human. No, the preexistent Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, became man. Truly, fully, completely human. We call this the incarnation, that the Son of God becomes man. And as a result, Jesus is now both fully human and fully divine. We call this the hypostatic union, the union of Christ's two hypostases, the, the union of His two essence or, or, or natures, deity and humanity, one person with two natures, remaining who He was, that is God, He became what He was not, which is man. So Jesus is fully human, but not sinful. That's where the word likeness comes in. He's like us in our humanity, but unlike us in our sin. That's why it says the likeness of sinful flesh. Paul is kind of walking a theological tightrope, uh, if you will, here. He needs you to understand that Jesus is fully human. He also needs you to understand that Jesus is not sinful. He needs you to understand both the humanity and the sinlessness of Jesus. Why does He care about that? Notice the next phrase in the passage, in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. If He isn't fully human, then He can't be an offering for sin. If He isn't sinless, then He can't be an offering for sin. And that's why He came in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin as a sacrificial offering for sin. So do you see the beauty, the brilliance, In four little English words, three Greek words, Paul has just uh, woven together the idea that Christ is absolutely fully human, but at the same time uh, avoided the implication that Christ might be sinful because he needs us to grasp the humanity and the sinlessness of Jesus if we were to understand how Jesus could be an offering, a sacrificial offering for sin. So that's what God has done He sent His Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. And in doing so, He has done, Paul says, what the law could not. The Mosaic law could not save. The Mosaic law could not justify. It could not give life. Because as we've seen over and over over the past few weeks, it arouses the flesh. It excites sin. We used the the illustration uh, before of uh, the Mosaic law upon the human heart has the same effect as throwing gasoline on a fire. The Mosaic law isn't a brake pedal to be applied to sin. The Mosaic law is an accelerator. Why? Because the essence of sin is rebellion against the law. The essence of sin is a rebellion against any sort of authority, any sort of law. That's what it means when it says that the law was weakened by the flesh. As we've said over and over, the problem isn't the law itself. The law is good. The law is holy. The problem is sin. The law is like an iron pipe. And through that iron pipe, the waters of sin have coursed 
and rusted away the pipe, weakening it day after day after day with the result that it can no longer do what it's intended to do. All of the grace leaks out before we can drink it, and instead we're left with iron poisoning or something like that. So because the law was weakened by the flesh, God took the initiative by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh with the result, it says, that He condemns sin in the flesh. Notice here the deliberate contrast. Someone or something is going to be condemned. That is natural. That is going to happen. That is inescapable. That is inevitable. We are not condemned. That's how we began. There is therefore now no condemnation. We are not condemned because sin is condemned. Something's got to be condemned. We are not condemned because sin is condemned. This reminds me of the story of Haman if you're familiar with him from the book of Esther. Haman, who is a Persian official, hates the Jews in general because really he hates one Jew in particular. That Jew is a Jew named Mordecai. And so Haman decides that he is going to oppress and persecute all of the Jews in this effort uh, to really uh, kind of uh, destroy his enemy Mordecai. And so Haman at one point builds these huge gallows, and he intends to have this public ceremony where he is going to hang Mordecai on these gallows. But if you're familiar with the story, there is this reversal, and by the end of the story, Haman himself is hung on his own gallows. That's what happens here in this passage. Sin builds these gallows to hang sinners with condemnation. And yet sin finds itself on those very same gallows. Sin itself is condemned. Follow the logic here in the passage because it's fascinating. Jesus comes in the likeness of sinful flesh. So sin, seeing a human, strikes Jesus, unleashes all of his, its fury against Him. Sin condemns Jesus. It pronounces Him guilty pronounces a verdict concerning him and stings him with a sting of death. But Jesus is innocent. He looks like us. He bears a striking resemblance to sinful flesh, and yet he knew no sin, which means that sin has condemned an innocent man. If you're familiar with, uh, in the book of Proverbs, uh, last fall we actually preached this passage which talks about uh, to condemn the innocent is a sin. Sin, that's what sin does. It condemns the innocent, and so sin itself is condemned. This is the most dramatic reversal of all time. Death and sin were BFF. Death was sin's greatest ally, but like a snake that tries to eat something that's too big for them, and then it bursts open. So sin has a natural, rightful, warranted grasp on you and me, but when it tries to consume Christ, it splits open. And as a result, its grip on you and me is loosened and broken as well because we are in Him. And we'll see why in verse 4. Verse 4, the result, the reason, the, uh, the consequence of this. Verse 4, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. This is the goal the purpose, the intent of God doing what the law could not in condemning sin 
so that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. As Augustine would say, the law was given that grace might be sought. Grace was given that the law might be fulfilled. The first time I, uh, I read this passage, even as I was studying for this sermon, uh, I kind of thought this was sort of a logical formula in this passage, kind of three-step formula of what it means that the law is fulfilled in us. I thought, step one, Christ fulfilled the law. He not only lived a sinless life, but He also lived a life of perfect obedience to the uh, Mosaic law. So He never murdered, uh, He never cursed God, He never coveted that which wasn't His, but He also never boiled a young goat in his mother's milk or marred the edges of his beard or anything else. He didn't just fulfill the big ten commandments of the Mosaic law. He fulfilled all 613. Christ fulfilled the Mosaic law. That's step one. Well, step two, we're united to Christ. We've talked about that, union with Christ. We're in Him. So step one, Christ fulfills the law. Step two, we're in Christ. And so I thought step three is just a result of one and two, one and two, One plus two equals three. One, Christ fulfills the law. Two, we're in Christ. Three, the law is fulfilled in us. Now, everything that I just said is absolutely true. It's absolutely theologically true, but I don't think that's the point of this particular passage. Notice that the text doesn't say that the law is fulfilled for us. It says that the law is fulfilled in us. Is the law fulfilled for us? Yes, absolutely. But the question of preaching isn't just if a doctrine is true, but if this particular passage teaches that particular doctrine. We want to teach the right truth from the right text. So the law is fulfilled for us. That's absolutely true. It's the ground. That's the hope for our justification. But I don't think that that, this passage in particular is uh, telling us that. I think this passage is more concerned with our sanctification, how the law is fulfilled not merely... uh, for us, but in us, or even by us. I think what Paul is saying that, uh, is that now that we have the Spirit, we begin to walk by the Spirit. And because we walk by the Spirit, we fulfill what he calls the righteous requirement of the law. So what does that term mean? In order to really flesh out that term, it would be helpful for us to then kind of flip through the rest of our Bibles and see where does Paul or other New Testament authors talk about the fulfilling of the law. One of those places would be Galatians 6.2. We'll put it up on the screen, I think, which says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Other, um, otherwise, in Galatians 5, verse 14, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. In the book of James, James 2.8, it says, if you really fulfill the royal law, According to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But perhaps it would be most helpful to stay in the context of Romans, to flip forward just a few chapters. We get to Romans 13, 8 through 10, which says, Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. As Christ has said, the entire law and the prophets are summed up in this word, to love God and to love your neighbor. I think in, uh, here in Romans 8, when it talks about fulfilling the righteous requirement of the law, I think that's what Paul is talking about here, to walking in this spirit of love. Now that we've been given the, uh, the spirit of love, that we are then to walk out 
that love. The righteous requirement of the law is love, love for God and love for neighbor because we have the Spirit. We live out that love and thus fulfill uh, the law of love. In other words, as there was this inescapable link between condemnation and sin, so now there is this inescapable link between justification and sanctification. Those who are under condemnation will certainly sin. That's their identity. Those who are justified will certainly begin to act in accordance with the new spirit that they have been given uh, in Christ. So obedience is expected. It's even required as a consequence of us being born again, as a consequence of us experience the reality of the indwelling presence of the Spirit. Not obedience to the Mosaic law, not obedience in our own strength, but obedience nonetheless which flows out of a heart that's been born again. So this is just another way of answering the question that we posed in Romans 6. Shall we sin all the more so that grace may abound? Of course not. May it never We've already answered that. So there's this obligation, there's this expectation that Paul has for us. In light of all that we've seen, if there truly is no condemnation for us, then we might therefore walk by the Spirit and not by the flesh. There is now an opportunity and an obligation for us to walk in freedom, to pursue virtue and love for the good of our neighbor and the glory of God. That's what this verse is saying. That love, in a sense, is kind of a litmus test for the validity of our faith, that sanctification is an evidence of our justification, that our walking by the Spirit fulfills the law of love, the law of the Spirit of life, demonstrating that we've been released, that we've been set free from the law of sin and death, which proves that we're no longer under condemnation. That's the flow of Romans 8, 1 through 4. So, we walk according to the Spirit, and not the flesh, but we know that we also have this lingering residue of the flesh, which means that we won't perfectly walk in obedience. We walk with this lifelong limp, if you will. Even every act of love that we commit is tainted to some degree by a dash of pride or selfishness or greed or lust or whatever it might be, and that reality has the potential to lead us to shame. This passage is saying that God has set us free in order that we might walk in love toward others, and yet many of us look at our lives and we don't see love. We look at our lives and we see so many places where we seem loveless. We scream at our spouse. We scream at our kids. We scream at our coworkers. We're impatient. We're apathetic. Whatever it might be, all of these different evidences in our life of places where we fall short, and there's a sense in which some of us might be feeling this sense of condemnation, this sense of shame, kind of like a, uh, someone at 40 who still has acne or someone who's 14 and still wets the bed. We think, we should have outgrown this by now. Why am I still wrestling with this? Why am I still struggling with this? I've been set free from this. And that's where we have to go back to verse 1 and preach this over and over to ourselves, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus None whatsoever. There's no asterisk. There's no fine print. There's no exceptions to this. Right here, right now, if you are in Christ, then there is no condemnation. Not a little, not a smudge, not a jot or a tittle. Right here, right now, 
in absolute, full, complete, exhaustive knowledge of all of your myriad shortcomings and sins and failures and faults, past, present, and future, God has declared you perfect. He has set His love upon you. He has sent His Son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin that you might know no condemnation that you might be delivered into the liberty of God's love to walk in freedom and righteousness. That's good news. That's the Gospel. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set us free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, He condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for Your Word this morning. I thank You for that great truth. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None whatsoever. And I pray that You would help our hearts to believe that. Help our hearts to receive that to relish that, to rejoice in that, that this might not just simply be some sort of forensic academic truth. That might be the type of good news that goes down into our bones and affects the way that we live, the way that we love, the way that we view the world, the way that we think, the way that we view our leisure time, the way that we love our families, and on and on we could go. I thank You that You sent Your Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin that You freed us from sin, that we might walk in love. Help us to do that. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.